today's class, we're going to be talking about the period right after the fall of Constantinople to the Turks in 1453. This period was one in which a lot of events occurred, and we're probably not going to get all, to all of them today. We'll probably focus on the first, but I'd like to talk about all of them so that we get a perspective of the overall period before we deal with each one separately. The first thing I'm going to talk about, and which I'll, I'll focus on today, will be the effect of the Turkish conquest on the church in the Byzantine Empire, or the former Byzantine Empire, uh, the church effect on church life its, itself and in, in the uh, structure of the church. However, at the same time, when the Byzantine church was undergoing the changes brought about by the Turkish conquest, other things were happening that affected the overall history of, of orthodoxy in, in the Christian world. The first is the emergence of Moscow from Tartar rule and the kind of autocephalous independence of the, the uh, Russian Orthodox Church that came about at this time. Initially, the independence was sparked by the Council of Florence when Metropolitan Isidore accepted the union with with Rome, and this was rejected by the Russian Church, and he was expelled, and uh, the Russian Church began appointing its own patriarchs at this point. Moscow is important because it was the uh, largest country that was not under Muslim domination, where the Orthodox Church existed, and the, the rise of Moscow makes it the sort of uh, secular patron of the Orthodox Church, and of the Orthodox world, it's beginning with this period, where Ivan the Third, who was the the ruler of Moscow at this time, begins to be called the Tsar, and in a way is is seen as the replacement of the Byzantine emperors, who had fallen away into union with Rome and had been uh, defeated by the Turks. He had married niece of the last Byzantine emperor, and he considered himself as a descendant of the Byzantine emperors through Vladimir's marriage to Anna, although in fact. Uh, that marriage didn't produce any children, and as part of the ideology of the of the Russian Orthodox Church, they begin to see Moscow as the replacement for Constantinople, and this is the the idea of of Moscow as the third Rome. This idea becomes prominent in Russia right after the fall of Constantinople, particularly around 1500. The third major change is an economic one that occurs with the breaking of the sort of Muslim monopoly over trade to the east prior to this time all trade uh, the, the Mediterranean world for thousands of years had always traded with India and China along the coast from trade through from ports in the uh, Persian Gulf and Iran uh, and then also overland through through Iran and the country of, of Persia now, this kind of made the Eastern Mediterranean and the Middle East great centers of wealth, the center of, of world commerce and culture. Shortly after the fall of Constantinople, the European countries, particularly Portugal and Spain, made some uh, advances in their uh, navigation. And we have in the 1480s, uh, Portuguese 
establishing a sea trade route with India and the East and in general, China and the Spice Islands of what's now Indonesia, around Africa. And ultimately, this trade will largely bypass the uh, transport through the, through the Middle East of uh, luxury goods from India and China. The other major development was Columbus, who was often portrayed as first to realize the world was round when everyone else thought it was flat. But in, in fact, early the uh, Greeks had determined the size of the world fairly exactly early on, and, and people didn't want to support Columbus because they realized correctly that uh, he would never be able to sail all the way from Spain to China. But Columbus was actually mistaken in thinking that the world was much smaller than it really is, and so headed out across the Atlantic, expecting to arrive in China somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. But instead, he ultimately arrived at the New World, and this, together with Cortez's conquest of the Aztec Empire in Mexico in 1519, and the Pizarro's conquest of the Inca Empire in Peru shortly after, and the French and British uh, colonies being established in the, in the North America early 1500s created a whole new center for development and commerce uh, that flanked the Atlantic coast. Both of the effect of both of these developments on history is that it changed the focus of economic and therefore to a certain extent uh, political uh, interests and power away from the eastern Mediterranean and uh, particularly in Europe the uh, Italy had been the, the center of the Renaissance and wealth because it was as Constantinople earlier because they were the the uh, trade routes for this trade back and forth between Europe and the, now the Muslim world the Middle East with the establishment of Atlantic trade routes and Atlantic uh, development in the New World, this changed at least partly the focus of Europe away from the Mediterranean and the Middle East towards uh, the Atlantic Ocean, the Atlantic Coast. So countries like Portugal, Spain, France, and England that had been on the periphery before now become the centers of of power and, and, as the, and the centers of the of commerce, and to a certain extent, begin to eclipse uh, the earlier centers. Ultimately, they they do, and that's in the modern kind of leads us to the situation in the modern world. So the the Byzantine Church, which under the Byzantine Empire had existed in, in one of those centers of world culture, will gradually find itself living not only under Turkish domination but increasingly on the periphery of world commerce and culture as as this shift which just begins at this time but but which gradually uh, takes place really uh, through uh, the number of centuries up into the modern times the third major development i'd like to talk about just mention anyway is the the protestant reformation that occurred uh, in the early 1500s this event created in some ways, an even more alien uh, church from Orthodoxy, in the sense that the uh, the Protestant reformers Martin Luther and John Calvin were kind of let's say uh, extreme Augustinians who were 
leaving partly leaving the Catholic Church because it was not purely Augustinian enough, whereas the Catholic Church, to a certain extent, had kind of modified parts of Augustine's legacy to the to the Western Church. Luther and Calvin wanted to make that the ideas of Augustine more more uh, stark, modified, unmellowed, let's say, to preserve them more purely, and in doing so, pushed part of the Western world, the let's say, so the Germany, Switzerland, ultimately Holland and England and Scandinavia, further away from Orthodoxy in some theological sense. In another sense the Protestant Reformation created an ally for the Orthodox Church, potential ally, uh, for its opposition to the papal supremacy, which was kind of one of the key developments of in the formation of Roman Catholicism that the Orthodox Church rejected. The Protestants also rejected the idea of the papal monarchy, and this will be important uh, benefit to the Orthodox world of the Protestant Reformation in giving them a counterweight against Roman Catholic uh, European influence, Western European influence in the form of uh, Protestant Western European influence. This uh, leads me also to uh, my, my fourth point that I'd like to mention or excuse me, fifth I guess uh, is that with the fall of, of the Byzantine Empire a process which we've already seen developing in our earlier talk about the Unionist movement which is the growing sympathy to the uh, Byzantine educated class, the Byzantine humanists, for Western scholasticism is going to uh, continue to grow, and with it, Western influence on the Byzantine church will will grow. This is brought about by several things. One is the just uh, collapse of education under the Turkish rule, and second, the the centers of education either being uh, where Greeks live traveling in exile to Italy or traveling for education to Italy and uh, other western centers as be providing the intellectual leadership for the Orthodox Church. Second is the infiltration of, of the Turkish Empire by Jesuits and others who you know, obviously were teaching a uh, Roman Catholic theology or in some cases later Protestant theology and this, over a series of centuries, really, from the 16th to 18th century, leads to a profound uh, westernization of the Orthodox Church. And particularly, the, the, the primary element of this westernization is going to be Roman Catholicism. For the period after the fall of Constantinople to the Turks, there are a number of very fine sources that we can use. For the Byzantine Church under the Turkish captivity, perhaps the the best in English and standard work is probably Stephen Runciman's The Great Church in Captivity, published by Cambridge Press in 1968. This covers the church, Byzantine church, on the eve of the conquest, talking about the development of scholasticism and the hesychasm, as well as the events of the conquest and the life of the church under the Turkish uh, control, right down to the 19th century, and probably is sort of the basic text uh, for studying this period. Another good book on the life of the Christians under the Turks is by Bat Ya'or, The Decline of Eastern Christianity Under Islam from Jihad to Dimitud, put up by Fairley Dickinson Press in 1996. This is part of a series of books that she's done on the life of Christians under Muslim rule. 
this one particularly deals with with our period, although other things as well. But it focuses more on the uh, life of the Christian in this kind of the general life of the of Christians under the Turkish state at this time or under Muslim rule. Uh, whereas the Great Church of Captivity is a more uh, detailed church history of the church church history itself, the doings of the patriarchs and the theology. This uh, Batyor's book is more general about just the ordinary life of the Christians. Another good book is Witnesses for Christ, Orthodox Christian Neo-Martyrs of the Ottoman Period, 1437 to 1860. As the title implies, it's a book about the martyrs uh, under the Turks by uh, Michael Vaporis. It's put out by St. Vladimir Seminary Press uh, in 2000. There uh, is at least one other book on this period, on, on, the, on the martyrs, excuse me, on the martyrs under the Turks, but this one has the advantage that the martyrs are covered chronologically, which is an advantage for historical study. Of course, the other one, I believe, is organized by the church here, which might be more useful for devotional purposes, but in terms of understanding the development of the history, this is an excellent text. On the Russian Orthodox, uh, development of the Russian Orthodox Church, a uh, basic text on the tr- events in church history and sort of religious developments in Russia is George Fedotov's The Russian Religious Mind, Volume 2, as uh, of the translation put out by Nordland Press, is, deals particularly with our period, medieval, late medieval period. Another good book on, on the Russian Orthodox Church is uh, by George Florovsky, The Ways of Russian Theology, also uh, translated and published by Nordland Press. This is a more uh, detailed theological analysis of developments of Russian theology and, and church life that occurred, well, and, and particularly covering uh, the effects of of this uh, westernization that we talked about that occurred after the fall of Constantinople and some of the other internal developments, but also the, the struggle of the church to maintain its uh, orthodox tradition in the face of, of a very pervasive uh, tendency towards westernization. And another uh, book that pertains, there's a there's many books on many books on Russian Orthodox saints, of course, and there of course would be all very good for studying particular saints. But uh, one particularly relevant to our period uh, after the fall of Constantinople would be uh, Pierre Kovalevsky's uh, Saint Sergius and Russian Spirituality, put out by Saint Vladimir Seminary Press in 1958, because uh, Saint Sergius of Radonezh is the leading spiritual figure of of the Hesychast movement. It's actually a little earlier but it kind of sets up the inheritance of, let's say, Byzantine spiritual life, uh, particularly coming from Hesychasm into the Russian Orthodox Church. In the uh, period that we're going to be talking about, the Russian Orthodox uh, Church, after the fall of Constantinople, there's a, a conflict between this Byzantine tradition of, of, of Hesychasm and uh, Western influences, which uh, involve more state control of religious life and uh, particularly uh, the int- introduction of persecution on the model of the of the Western Inquisition. Uh, we'll see this in the in the controversy between the possessors and the non-possessors, which uh, is exactly in the period we're going to be discussing. <coughs> okay, I would like to begin now with the discussion of the changes that occurred in the Byzantine Church with the fall of Constantinople and its rule uh, by the Turks. The first thing that came about was that the union with Rome 
that had been brought about by imperial pressure in exchange for the hope of Western military aid against the Turks came to an end. The Turks replaced Gennadius Scalarius, had him be made the patriarch, and he was the person who, although part of the Council of Florence earlier, had come to recognize the dangers of the union with Rome and opposed it during the siege and during the time when the Emperor Constantine was was imposing a union. So, with the Turkish occupation, the church gained sort of the freedom from uh, imminent threat of conquest, uh, freedom from the Christian imperial government's political need for military aid, and was able to conduct its affairs based on spiritual, its own spiritual understanding, which was that the Pope and the Church of the West had entered error, schism and heresy, by instituting the the papal monarchy and the uh, doctrine of the filioque. So, in this way, the Turkish conquest allowed the church the freedom to return to its own church life, to be true to the orthodox tradition coming from the apostles. It also placed the patriarch within a, a large country that encompassed not only much of his own patriarch, but that most but most Orthodox Christians uh, lived within the Turkish Empire, especially as the Turkish Empire grew uh, later to incorporate other Muslim lands and other parts of the Balkans. Instead of the Patriarch being in a small, isolated empire with most of the Orthodox Christians living outside of it. So in this way, it brought in a kind of worldly way, perhaps more simplicity of church administration. Now, Another sort of seeming benefit was that the Turks instituted what is known as a millet system, which is that each population group, ethnic group, uh, was ruled, had its own laws, and was had its own kind of internal government as long as it paid tribute to the, to the Turks. And the Patriarch of Constantinople was made the head of the Orthodox uh, millet, Orthodox Christian millet. So he, in a sense, took the place of the Byzantine emperor as the civil head of orthodox Christian government. This uh, gave the Patriarch of Constantinople a great secular power, which he had never had in orthodox history before. This also gave him, so he had secular power over the orthodox Christians, but also a predominance over the other patriarchs and bishops within the Turkish Empire, because he was the main intermediary with the Turkish government, and all uh, Episcopal appointments had to be approved by the Turkish government. Now, these, in some ways, uh, additions to the patriarch's power were also uh, dangers and temptations, because the, the, the papacy had kind of the same problem that they had at some point in the Middle Ages acquired secular rule over the papal states and become secular rulers competing with other secular rulers and second that the papacy was claiming in the middle ages a rule over all other christian bishops this turkish system then by civil authority sought to put patriarch of constantinople into the same position as the pope the good thing is that the orthodox patriarchs preserved their orthodoxy insofar as they preserved the church from a, a sort of eastern papacy. Now we can see that that in some actions of individual patriarchs, these temptations may have been succumbed to. That the the civil power 
over other Orthodox people may have uh, tempted them to feel that they could act unilaterally without the consensus of the whole church. But in general, the Byzantine church preserved the concept of conciliarity and the Orthodox teaching that all bishops are equal. At least theologically, they maintain this, although, as I said, individuals may have at times acted in accordance with the temptations that civil power placed in their way. One of the difficulties of the Millet system, which placing the the patriarch and the church in the role of secular authorities, was that it, on the one hand, kind of created a moral compromise or dilemma in that the governing of the Orthodox people was at the same time participation in the subjection of the Orthodox people to the Turkish uh, and Muslim rule. So this uh, dilemma, of course, plagued Orthodox leaders throughout the the Turkish period uh, because in in ruling their own people, part of the thing that the, the leaders had to do was they were responsible for ensuring that the taxes for the Turks were collected for making sure that the people were not rebelling against the Turks. So they were benefiting Turkish rule and helping in some ways the oppression of, of Orthodox at the same time that they were perhaps able to act as patrons and to provide some kind of independent governance for the Orthodox in the bad situation of being under the Muslim rule. The other difficulty is that the position, of course, was a position of secular power, and so created a temptation for those who wanted to exploit that. And the other difficulty was that the Turks themselves exploited the position by charging a large sums of money in order for patriarchs to be installed, and not only just as a a sum to uh, ratify the decisions of the church, but in a sense to that they were willing to be, the Turkish government was willing to be bribed to replace the current patriarch with someone who was willing to pay more money. So uh, the the patriarchs at one point were constantly being uh, replaced because the the uh, different people were, uh, factions were out bribing each other and the Turkish government was happy to collect all these bribes and, and keep changing the patriarch. In, in one uh, uh, century, 1600s, there were 61 patriarchs uh, installed as opposed to 19 in the previous century because of this constant interference of the Turkish government to replace the patriarch in response from a bribe coming from one faction or the other. The role of bribery in gaining positions of power in the Ottoman Empire forced the the church uh, to rely on money, large sums of money, uh, and, and individuals of the church uh, that this, these sums of money increasingly became were needed uh, to be recruited from Western powers, and <coughs> this, in a way, the Turkish, let's say, exploitation of the church gave the Western powers uh, great opportunities to, for, of influence because it it made the people in the Turkish Empire dependent on these Western funds to uh, put the patriarch of their choice into into power, and so. At some points, it was a, a kind of bidding war between Roman Catholic countries and Protestant countries as to which faction of the Orthodox Church was going to be in power, uh, whether a fa- you know a patriarch who would favor the Protestants or a patriarch who would favor the Roman Catholics. Another uh, source of funds was th- from the exploitation 
of the Christian population. They said the uh, the Greek government, the Greek governors under the Turks, owed their position often to bribery and to their ability to implement Turkish rule over the over the Christian people. But in order to maintain their own position through bribery, they had to be able to derive large sums of money from the people over whom they ruled. <clears throat> this caused great hardship and, and to a certain extent, caused Christian leaders to be oppressors of, of Christian people in the same way that they perhaps were trying to sometimes be helpful through patronage. So it gives a kind of double rule role to the, the Christian leadership under the Turkish Empire of oppressors as well as protectors. This this role of oppression, as time went on, kind of also became connected with a sort of uh, Hellenizing movement where the, the because the leadership of the Christian uh, Orthodox Christian Milet was focused on the Patriarchate of Constantinople, the people who made up this administration were the wealthy Greeks of Constantinople, and they saw themselves in a way as perpetuating the Byzantine Empire under the sort of Turkish cover, and that they, kind of in the interest of preserving their power, of course had to increase their exploitation of, of the people under them, and often these people were non-Greek Orthodox Christians, in particular Romania, which was an area that was uh, more distant from Turkish rule, was a, was a place that a lot of wealthy Greek administrators bought estates in order to finance themselves and to finance their effort to kind of stay in power with the Turks. This also, we talked about earlier, the the patriarch, those kind of temptations against conciliarity where the Patriarch of Constantinople had this sort of temptation to use his position as leader of Orthodox Christians over the other fellow patriarchs and bishops. And part of this was the process of Hellenization in church life where there was an effort to suppress the non-Greek patriarchates and non-Greek services. And these were temptations that fortunately the church escaped from, but in the process it caused great animosity between uh, some of the Orthodox peoples and the Patriarch of Constantinople and, and the Greek aristocracy in Constantinople. The, when the Turkish Empire started to decay in the 19th century, many of the wealthy Greeks hoped that they could hold it together and, and essentially replace the Turkish Sultan. But uh, instead, the the uh, peoples of the non-Greek peoples had come to hate the Christian the rulers that were, that were over them, that were these uh, Greek aristocrats, because of their long oppression. And so when they broke free... They were wanting to break free from Greek control as much as from Turkish control. And so instead of the Byzantine Empire emerging united from under Turkish rule after having been united under the Turks for centuries, instead each ethnic group uh, wanted to have its own country. It was under essentially the leadership of kind of secular nationalism that the Christians were finally freed from Turkish oppression. For Orthodox Christians as a whole, the Turkish conquest meant that their existence now became dependent upon uh, payment of tribute to the Muslims. This is uh, the Turkish system was based on the ideology of Islam, the Quran, whereby non-Muslims exist only for the benefit of Islam, and so either they could be killed, uh, sold as slaves, or can exist as so far as they provide tax. 
then this kind of uh, life under heavy taxation and, and some of the other things we'll talk about, in one sense, uh, preserved for the Christian people as a source of funds for the Muslim uh, world, but but over many centuries, the effect of the, being uh, of long-term exploitation by governments that did not consider that the Christians had any rights, inherent rights of existence, uh, ultimately led to the in general, the destruction or at least uh, grave deterioration of the Christian communities in Muslim lands, and this uh, was the same under under the Turkish Empire. Being under the the Muslim rule meant that Christians were no longer able to speak openly there. Unlike in the time of the uh, Roman Empire, where the uh, Ro- Roman pagan government, of course, also put Christians to death, and where the, the Christians were often killed for criticizing paganism. The difference <coughs> was that there the church had its existence separate from the pagan government. And the pagans, although they often killed the Christians, were also listening to the Christians. That they, that they, they felt that, that they could uh, debate with the Christians openly. And, and in the end, of course, the, the pagans came to accept Christianity. In the Muslim world, sort of like in the communist uh, rule over Orthodox countries, the non-Christian governments, to a certain sense, endorsed the Orthodox Church in its outward form. And so, in a way that the Roman government did not, allowed the outer structure of the Church to survive, the buildings, the services, the hierarchies. But the price of that uh, outward, that kind of preservation of the outward existence meant the, that the church had to come to live with the restrictions upon sp- speech, so that in the in the Roman world, the pagan world, Christians were often killed for being Christians uh, in preaching. In, in the in the uh, Muslim world, we find that Christians, we look at the martyrs, is are often just being killed simply out of oppression, and we'll talk about this. But it's a, a somewhat of a difference that that the church by kind of accommodating itself to the, the governments, the governments by accommodating the church and the church by accommodating to these non-Christian governments was preserved outwardly but in other ways was demoralized by pre- being prevented from preaching its, its faith to the people ruling over it. In this case the Christians were, it was forbidden to uh, criticize Islam or Muhammad that people would be put to death for doing that and so generally they didn't do that uh, they, it was forbidden for people to, to convert from Islam to Christianity and so generally that did not happen and the uh, Christianity was sort of allowed to exist if it kind of remained quietly in its own world and did not attempt to influence the Muslim world this rule against Christians, uh, people, Muslims becoming Christians became a, a great source of oppression to Christians because Christians had no legal right in the Turkish Empire or Muslim states in general. So that if a Christian was not only kind of forced to be, either forced to become a Muslim or, or was accused of having become Muslim, even without any evidence or any likelihood of, of truth, the Christians' own testimony that they were not wanting to be Muslim or had never become Muslim uh, had no weight in a Muslim court. And so, in such circumstances, 
by Islamic law, the Christians had no alternative but to be, either become, Islam, become Muslim or be killed. And so it became, when you read the Book of Martyrs, uh, sadly, what you mostly find is that the martyrs were people whom their neighbors would accuse falsely of becoming Muslim, uh, simply to to plunder them, just to take their 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 lands or their wealth or their wives or something, and and uh, the courts, perhaps even knowing that this was the case, would still say, well, that's all right. You would have to become Muslim or else be killed. And so the the people who refused to become Muslim were became the martyrs, not so much out of a zealous preaching against Islam of of Orthodox Christianity, but rather just as victims of uh, of slander and injustice. And this is a sad thing that the people, the Christian people, were consistently exposed to all the time they were in the Turkish Empire. They were also just uh, subject to arbitrary confiscation of their goods, people occasionally massacres and, and robberies that they were not able to, to get any compensation for because they again, had no legal rights. The other element of uh, Islam, the t- Turkish rule, was the kind of system of uh, kidnapping large numbers of Christian children and forcing these children to be to convert to Islam and to be enrolled as Islamic troops, the Janissaries. One of the some modern people try to argue that well, this is really a great benefit that uh, the Turks were bestowing on on the uh, non non Muslims by allowing them to become Muslim and to have a you know kind of move up. But from the point of view, of course, of the Christians, their uh, their children were being uh, stolen from them, and and the people uh, were again forced with either the young children in this case being forced to either give up their faith in God and become Muslim or or to be killed. This uh, process of kind of heavy taxation of plunder and uh, subjection to all kinds of false accusations and loss of their children and their goods ultimately leads to, well, in the short term led to a, a rapid decline in wealth and education in the Orthodox world. That again made the uh, the Orthodox become more dependent upon the West for uh, intellectual leadership, but it it also ultimately destroyed most of these Orthodox communities. If you read the book uh, From the Holy Mountain, which is uh, by someone named Dalyrimple, who was a uh, was following the route of John Moscus, sixth-century uh, pilgrim through the Eastern Mediterranean and visiting the Orthodox Christian communities or native Christian communities in these countries, what you discover is that most of the Christian communities have either been destroyed or in the process of being destroyed and driven out by long centuries of oppression that continue right up till now. This, uh, as I said, this destruction and weakening of, of Orthodox education helps to shift education, intellectual and educational leadership into the western lands. Already in the time of the Italian Renaissance, before the fall of Constantinople, many uh, educated Greeks were living in Italy and cities uh, such as Venice, Padua, were centers of Greek learning. And this especially became more so after the Turkish conquest because it was only in places like Venice that Greek intellectuals had the freedom to study and to later produce books 
that for the pe- people in the, in the Turkish Empire. So the the Western world, in a way, was a refuge for Orthodox Christians, and and in that refuge, they were able to continue some of the intellectual activities and and publishing. But the but just as perhaps under the under communist uh, control of Eastern Europe, many Orthodox countries. Orthodox people found refuge in the West, and many kind of church activities, published such as publishing, continued in the West at a time when they were restricted in the communist countries. But in this, in the case of the Turkish rule, this this uh, sort of exile into the West and dependence on, on the West as a source of education, the Western universities, and and then as as the Western teachers, the Jesuits, start coming into the empire, the result will be uh, the topic that we'll, we'll take up at a later time, which is the kind of the, the heavy Latinization of the Orthodox world, both in the case that many Orthodox bishops will convert to Roman Catholicism, and, uh, and also in the case that, that Orthodox theology increasingly comes to be described in Latin and Western categories of thought and this Professor Florovsky refers to in, in the case of Russia as this sort of pseudomorphosis of orthodoxy that it's a kind of change of, of expression into into the Western format. Well, this is all we have time to talk about today. As I mentioned at the beginning the a number of different things were going on at the same time. The this sub- subjugation of the Byzantine Church to the Turks, of course, continues to a certain extent even till today, because of course the Patriarch of Constantinople is living in Turkey, but for at least for most of the Orthodox world until the 19th century, when the Turkish Empire and the Balkans was largely broken up. The, the this so these which is happening, kind of contemporary with other things that, such as what we'll talk about next time the rise of Moscow as the new leader secular leader of the Orthodox world the, the Moscow being called the third Rome and then in the west this is also the time of the Protestant Reformation and the expansion of, of the western countries along the Atlantic seaboard by their explorations of the new world and their establishment of trade with the east and then in our after this probably in, a, in another class we'll talk about the the, the ongoing westernization of uh, orthodoxy in, in the in the Turkish lands actually and, and it, it's one that takes place in Russia as well so that'll be a theme that we'll we'll go into in more detail in a future class okay thank you very much